0: Shabbat shalom, everyone. I've entitled this teaching today, Israel Shall Live. Since October 7th, we've been doing kind of an ongoing teaching related to the centrality of Israel, the 12 tribes, the Jewish people, and those that are grafted into her. She's the central theme and focus of biblical theology and, and historical Uh, salvation from the beginning to the end. And, And we're seeing, we're all witnessing this, right? That many nations are calling for the destruction and elimination of Israel. They chant from their streets, from the river to the sea, Palestine shall be free. And everyone who is embroiled in this dilemma understands that this is their code for a violent jihad against Israel until she is no more. The problem for them, of course, is that the God of Israel has promised to give her not only the land of Israel, but all the nations. In and through Jesus, the good news is that in and through Jesus, the Jewish Messiah we all can find redemption and peace and prosperity we all become the ones who inherit all of these beautiful blessings from god it's offered to the jew first and also to the gentiles if we reject this offer of god if we reject and buy instead into the lies of satan we will find ourselves consumed with envy and hatred towards those who love God and his people, Israel. So today we're going to continue to explore the mysteries of this ancient war between good and evil, and how to do our part to win the day, to win this battle. So last week we were reading in Revelation chapter 12, the first six verses. This is one of John's visions. And it states, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and pain, to give birth. We looked at the background to this vision, the imagery in this vision, the Hebraic backdrop, the antecedent theology that's rooted in the Torah. And what we discovered is that this woman that John sees in the heavenlies is a symbol of Israel. It's speaking about Israel and that Israel would give birth to the quintessential gift to the world, Jesus, right? King of kings and Lord of lords the one who is known as the Savior of the world. The Hebrew people, the Jewish people, the nation would give birth to one of their own who would become the Savior of the world. What a gift, right? Jesus, the gift of Israel to the world. We also noted that the great red dragon, also known as the devil and Satan, sought from our beginning in the garden to find the Messiah and kill him. And after many thousands and thousands of years, he finally apprehended him and murdered him through Jewish and Gentile hands in a Roman-style execution known as crucifixion. In his death, Jesus descended into the place where all souls go in the afterlife. It's the realm of the departed, spirits it's the realm of the dead where satan resides as king he is king over the realm of the dead he and his angels thought that that thought that they had won the ultimate victory when all of a sudden god empowered his son who rises up in the realm of death strikes his immortal enemy with a crushing kick to the head You say, where's that? It's Genesis 3, the ancient prophecy, right? That the serpent will bruise his heel, but he, with his foot, his heel, will crush his head. So I'm thinking it might have been a roundhouse or maybe a jump back kick. Who knows? Crushing blow to his head. You know, it's the imagery of total victory, of course, over this immortal enemy. He then strips Satan of his power and authority, and limits his ability to roam freely in the realms of heaven and earth for a duration of time symbolized in the term millennium. Ultimately, he and his angels will be conquered, judged, and cast into the lake of fire. Until then, Israel, the Jewish people, and those who love them, they become the target of his attacks, of his anger. His goal, to destroy every one of us, to eliminate us, if he can. Welcome to the war between good and evil, light and darkness, truth and lies. I'm sorry it's not an optional war. We have no choice in this battle. We are brought into it because it is a spiritual and natural battle that's been raging and will have its finality at the end of the age. But I want to give us some encouragement by talking about this ancient vision that John has in Revelation chapter 12, because even though it lays out the dilemma and the problem and the challenges, the threats, existential threats, it also gives us the hope of victory in our struggles, both as individuals and as communities and as nations in this battle between good and evil. So, Revelation 12, 7 through 17. Um, this is actually, in John's vision, kind of the, the account of that battle that reaches its peak, at least in the heavenly realm. And it's in this war between Satan and his angels and Michael and his angels. Now, Michael is an archangel. Michael is like, like the ultimate warring angel in the Lord's armies of heaven. So a lot of different angels in a lot of different categories. When you talk about the armies of God, the military of God in the heavenlies, Michael's like the leader of the armies. He's the ultimate military angelic being that has a host of angelic warring angels. And they're encumbered in a war with Satan, the chief of the fallen angels. Satan and his entourage, a very powerful, very potent fallen angels. So this is the war that breaks out that we're going to read about. I want you to keep in mind the context of the war. I want you to think about when this war takes place. Most people, when asked, when did this war uh, take place and the sweeping of a third of the angels take place, they always put that prior to the Garden of Eden. It's always prior to the creation of humanity, some ancient time in the past. But John the Revelator says otherwise. John puts this battle in the context of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's going to be the actual time that this battle breaks out in the heavenlies. So keep that in mind as we're thinking about this. This took place nearly 2,000 years ago. And at first... It is first described, this battle, in the first six verses. We covered that last week. And so it's fir- it's first found there. But what we have is John kind of recasts this imagery and gives a fuller explanation of the first six verses and this ancient battle that takes place. So we're going to jump back into his vision. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. We'll begin in verse 7. It says, And there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon the dragon and his angels waged war and they were not strong enough and there was no longer a place for them in heaven have you ever been in a battle let me let me, let me ask that different, differently have you ever competed in contact sports wrestling boxing martial arts whatever right Uh, If you have, you know what I'm talking about. In the midst of any battle, you expend a tremendous amount of energy and emotion. You take some pretty painful blows, right? And by the end of the struggle, win, lose, or draw, you're just completely exhausted. When you think of actual military battles, military battles where someone's actually shooting at you and you could die, moments seem like days and weeks. Yeah, you spend hours, a day or two, in live battle. It seems like a year or two. Everything slows down. Everything you do determines whether or not you stay alive. I want you to think of this war in the heavenlies. These are the ultimate warriors. And there is certainly, certainly... Tremendous damage that's done to heaven itself in this battle. It's, it's somewhat speculative, but I want to say that there's probably casualties that ended up in immortal beings uh, not making it through this heavenly war. But that is speculation. We'll read a little bit about that in just a moment. I want you to think, though, That this war in the heavenlies didn't happen over five minutes or an hour. It probably waged for quite some time, maybe even years in the heavenlies, before this whole thing came to an end, before Michael and his angels suffered enough loss that there was no more room for them in heaven. But you'll note that they swept a third of the stars to the earth, a third of the angels of God were casualties in that war. It's a huge war that's taking place. Verse 9, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Thrown down with him. This is a description of the defeat of the enemy in the heavenlies. He, the father of lies, and a subterfuge, as John states in one of his other letters, that the whole world, quote-unquote, the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. Other translations will say under the rule of the evil one. He is cast to the earth, out of the heavenlies. This is a tremendous defeat for Satan and the fallen angels. Think about it. What's he doing in the heavenlies to begin with? Coup d'etat. That whole battle is his attempt to overthrow the heavenlies, to usurp the authority of God and take rule and reign over all creation. He's king over the realm of the dead, and he wants to be king over the realm of the living as well. And so as he makes his move, he suffers defeat and all these setbacks. One being, he's cast down with his angels to our realm where we live, right? Keep in mind, the timing of this war merges with the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Think about that. The defeat and triumph over Satan corresponded with the death and resurrection of Jesus. Let's read about that. Revelation 12, 5, if if we step back to last week, it says, And she, speaking of Israel, gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, right out of Psalm 2. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. What does that describe? The child who the enemy sought to destroy was rescued, delivered, lifted up into the heavenlies where he can no longer enter. He's delivered from the threat and now is put in a place where he's untouchable. The enemy can't go there anymore. The war is over and it's all going to be tied into the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Jesus, the babe born in Bethlehem, who becomes king of kings and lord of lords, ascends into the heavenlies, receives the scepter, sits at the right hand of God, and becomes the ruler over all creation. This is when Satan experiences his defeat. In his death, Jesus descends into the realm of death and over the powers of the evil one. Colossians 2.15 describes it like this. In his descent, it's described as this. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Yeah, he paraded them around in the realm of death, humiliating them. He not only took the keys, the authority and power away from the enemy, he then mocked him and humiliated him among all the realm of the dead. And then, and then took host you know, a host of captives, you know, there, there's a lot of theology tied into what happened at that point in terms of the upper realm of Sheol and, and now uh, uh, where paradise would be, would be found from that point on. Different sermon, sorry. Back to the point, Revelation 1.18. In the beginning of John's revelation, he sees Jesus, and in this vision, Jesus says in verse 18, I am the living one. I was dead. I was dead. Speaking of his death on the cross and descent into the realm of the dead. I was dead, right? But now I'm alive forever and ever. I have authority over death and over the world of the death. Other translations will say I have the keys of death and Hades. Okay? Okay. Keys, again, not being literal, but symbols of power and authority. Jesus now becomes the king over the realm of the dead, not just the living. He's king over everything. Revelation twelve ten goes on and says this. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of God and authority of his Christ has come. When? When? When Jesus walked the earth in his death, in his resurrection and ascension, it's at that point that the kingdom is fully established on earth, not consummated, but initialized, inaugurated. It's here. And it was through his death and resurrection that that powerful kingdom, the authority of God given to his son comes into reality in our world. The kingdom of God is here. It's all around us. We're participating in the rule and reign of Jesus on earth as he rules from heaven says, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. He's described as the accuser of the brethren. He brings accusation after accusation after accusation. And he mixes it with lies. He's a slanderer. He is a nasty slanderer. Think about how he works his works. Think about that. And he works through people. And then people tell lies about other people to bring them down. We see that every day, day in and day out. Have you ever been slandered? Have you ever had people say things that weren't true about you in order to hurt you and injure you? That's the spirit of Satan. That's how he works. That's how we see you know his activity in the world around us we see it all the time every night on the news he's a liar a deceiver an accuser he had access and freedom to move in the heavenlies to act as a prosecutor bringing accusations against the saints in the very presence of god and now all of that is ended all of that he's thrown down a description of defeat and where to? Our realm, where he's limited in power, limited in authority, and limited in geography. He can no longer go everywhere he wants to go. He can only roam in the realm that he's been limited to, our world, which, by the way, is the realm of the dead dead. We are born dead in our trespasses and sins. A person who is alive but doesn't know the Lord is actually described as being dead in their trespasses and sins. No, it is. It's like the zombie movies, you know? Our world is a bunch of zombies, the living dead. And until you come into faith in Jesus Christ, you are just part of the realm of the dead. And Jesus came here to set free those who are captives to the king of the dead. So everything changes with Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and ascension. All of this is wrapped up in this war that we see that breaks out in the heavenlies and ends up on earth. Verse 11, and they overcame him. Who? The ones in heaven. How'd they overcome The evil one. It says they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb. Yeah, how do we overcome the evil one? By the blood of the lamb. When he accuses us, sometimes his accusations are actually correct and accurate. Damning, right? The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And he's pointing out our sins to the Father and demanding justice. And if you're a judge, a, a just judge, you must condemn them. Yeah, so how do we overcome that? By the blood of the Lamb. We say, yes, we are sinners, but we've put our faith in the blood of the Lamb as our atonement. We've paid our debt through our substitutes. That's how we rise above the accusations and the threats by the blood of the Lamb. And then it goes on to say, and because of the word of their testimony, the fact that they would claim that, proclaim it and declare it, right? Their testimony, blood of the Lamb, their testimony, and that they did so even, even when facing the threat of death. Verse 12, for this reason, rejoice! For this reason, rejoice! You who are in the heavens, (sighs) rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, Because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Good news for heaven. Bad news for us in the world that we live in. And you can see the evil in our world everywhere. Why? Because the evil one dwells here. This is his locale. This is where he operates. This is the explanation for child sex trafficking, for murder, for, for rape, for all these crimes, for all this violence that we see around the globe. It's inspired by the one who hates Israel, hates the Jewish people, hates the God of Israel, hates the Messiah, and hates those who believe in him. It's the explanation of all that is wrong in our world. Verse 13, and when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. So in the midst of this heavenly battle, when all these other things are taking place on the earth, i.e. the birth of Jesus, the life, death, and resurrection, yeah, it's in that context, in that timeline, that he's cast to the earth. And when he sees that he's now limited to the earth, has no access to the heavenlies, he goes after the woman who gave birth to the male child. And who is the woman? Israel. Now, now, I want to kind of break that down and unpack that a little bit. Mary is a Jewish woman. She is a virgin, a very young woman. And she represents the earthly Israel, the physical descendants of Jacob, also known as the Jewish people. She also represents redeemed Israel, those who are Jewish and believe in the Messiah. And it's redeemed Israel, by the way, who is the queen of heaven. It's Israel in her full glory as she returns to her Messiah and is redeemed. Who's the male child? Obviously, it's Jesus, the babe born in Bethlehem. He's the new and greater Moses. Remember Moses said there's one coming like me, but he's greater than me. Yeah, he's the new and greater Moses. The one who becomes savior of the world, the one who becomes king of kings and lord of lords. Revelation 12:4 says this. Satan intends to kill the child. It says, "And the dragon stood before the woman, who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. That's the imagery. What does it mean? How does the imagery play out on the earth? More about that in a moment, but suffice it to say, Satan focuses his attack on Mary initially, and she represents Israel and the Jewish people. And also, he'll include in his attack her other children, all of the Gentiles who have put their faith in her beloved son, in Mary's son, in Jewish Mary's Jewish son. Note of clarification, in the days of Jesus' earthly life, Israel is primarily comprised of Jewish believers and Jewish unbelievers. Paul gives us the picture, the analogy of the olive tree, the olive tree of Israel. And that some of the branches are broken off through unbelief. Speaking of Jews who rejected his offer and thus were broken off. But many of the branches remained on the tree because they did believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so this olive tree of Israel represents redeemed Israel. It doesn't include the broken off branches, even though the broken off branches are also called Israel. You have greater Israel, which has both the believing Jews and unbelieving Jews. And you have, unre- or you have redeemed Israel, which is just the believing Jews. It's the redeemed Israel that's called the olive tree of Israel. And of course, the Gentiles who are grafted into her participate with her as the olive tree. So keep that in mind. It says in verse 14, but the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman. Who's the woman again? Mary, who represents Israel. So keep that in mind. Two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman. Again, all the imagery deals with symbols, types, and shadows. It's apocalyptic literature. She's not given actual wings. That are super glued on her back, and she—it's not literal. It's okay. So this is very, very um, symbolic, filled with symbols. So she's given uh, wings of the eagle, so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place, where she was nourished for a time and a times and a half a time, from the presence of the serpent. Earlier, John points out this same description in terms of days. 1,260, 1,260. He just says that differently in this passage. She's given two great eagle wings to fly into the wilderness. Hmm, What does that mean, right? What do eagle wings symbolize? Divine providence. It's the symbol of divine providence, God's deliverance. They communicate that God will oversee her deliverance from the evil agendas designed to harm her. Think of the Hebraic backdrop to this imagery. We find it in Exodus, a number of places, okay? But I chose this passage out of Exodus to illustrate it. Exodus 19.4. Listen how the, the Lord describes how he delivered his people out of Egypt through the wilderness and into the promised land. Listen to this. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagle wings, and brought you to myself. Do you think they were like on a big old mega set of wings that kind of floated through the air to Sinai? Of course not. They went right through the wilderness. But under God's providence, that he orchestrated that, helped them, led them, protected them, in order that they would be safe and secure as they moved to the promised land. It's described as being brought out on the wings of eagles. So on earth, back to our story, Mary and Joseph who are like Moses' parents, if Jesus is the new and greater Moses, there's got to be some connection between Joseph and Mary and the parents of Moses, right? You think if there was a first Moses and now a second Moses, then there's probably a first Exodus and a second and greater Exodus. So let's explore that for a few minutes because I'm almost out of time. And it bothers me, because I'm only halfway through it. But there's always next week, so. Okay. On earth, Mary and Joseph, like Moses' parents, are about to hide the new Moses from the current king, i.e. Pharaoh, who wants to kill him. The same scenario is playing out differently but pretty much the same as it did with the first Moses. This new Pharaoh wants him dead. Matthew 2.13. Now when they, the Magi, had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him keep in mind how the spiritual realm is intersecting with and influencing the natural realm. Satan works through his own. He's a liar, a deceiver, a seducer, and he leads people to do things at his bidding. And so he has inflamed the heart of this king, King Herod, to kill the Messiah, who at this point is basically an infant. Revelation 12, 4, this, the dragon's tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven, threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Joseph responds to a providential dream that is given to him. Let's read about that, Matthew 2, 14 through 15. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophets. Quote, out of Egypt, I called my son. Fascinating, isn't it? Has a dream? God says, get out. You're in imminent danger. Your lives are at stake. That's providence. That's God intervening in the affairs of our world, which is being seduced by the evil one. So God steps in, gives them a dream. Joseph said, Mary, get the baby. We're going. Where are we going? We're going to Egypt. You know, we got to get out of here. And they escaped to Egypt. And then the, the, the narrator here, the uh, uh, gospel of Matthew, Matthew tells us, This is all a setup for even more that's still coming. To fulfill the passage, out of Egypt did I call my son. Who's the son? In Hosea's day, what was Hosea and his people understanding by this? Oh, Israel, once again, the identification of Israel. What's, What's Pharaoh doing? He's drowning the males in the Nile River going to genocide the people of god god says hey moses go tell pharaoh stop it israel's my firstborn son speaks of corporate israel as a son singular if he continues to try to kill my son tell him i'm killing his which represents all the strength of his firstborn in egypt Pharaoh doesn't repent, so God kills his sons like Pharaoh attempted to kill Israel with water, the Nile, just like he was drowning Israel's sons by water. So all of this is connected, and what we're going to see here is that Jesus, who represents Israel, is going to come out of Egypt once again for a much greater exodus fulfilling much greater things related to our redemption than even the first one did. So, the eagle's wings, they symbolize God's providential deliverance, seen in God giving them a dream, warning them about the devil's plans, giving them the escape route, the destination, in order to protect them from danger and from imminent death. God then gives them another providential dream in order to bring them back to the promised land. So much later in Egypt, they have this dream. And, and, you know, scholars have debated how long they were in Egypt, but the weight of evidence in the scholarship points to it was, you know, shy of four years. You're right at that three and a half to four year mark that they were in Egypt, which is significant to the 1,260 days the wings that she's given to fly down, right? And then be preserved for that approximate time. And then everything turns around. So here's the dream. Verse 19, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Amazing. Amazing. He delivered them out of harm's way, brought them on eagles' wings to Egypt, and then, you know, 1260 days later, brings them on eagles' wings back to the promised land. We also see this similar deliverance in 70 AD when Rome sent their legions, their armies down to put Jerusalem in a siege. And Jesus reveals to them much earlier on when you see the armies that make desolate, right? The desolation of abomination. When you see them gathering around Jerusalem, get out, get off your roof, don't even go into pack. Run to the hills, get out. And they, of course, follow that and through providence are spared while everyone else in Jerusalem perish, the city destroyed. I had to leave you hanging and not being able to put a bow on this till next week. But let me just kind of suffice it to say, God is watching over his people. We're in a war, but God is the almighty one. And the battle has already been won through his son 2,000 years ago. And between his first coming and his second coming, there's going to be a lot of war. But it's already been won. World War II, D-Day, when they invaded the Normandy beaches. The war was over. Everyone knew it. If we could take and secure the beaches, it was over for Hitler. Hitler knew that too. The war, in effect, was won at Normandy. That's why they call it D-Day. But V-Day would have to wait until they finally surrendered. Now, between D-Day and V-Day, there was more violence than any other period of the war, bar none. You know where we're at? We're between D-Day and V-Day. So everything's wrapped up, and it's getting pretty crazy, and you can see that all around the world. So get ready, put your seatbelts on, but know this. God is providential. He's watching over us. He will speak to us. He'll give us what we need. We don't have to fret. We don't have to worry. We don't have to panic. We We don't have to go into hiding. We are the victors. We need to listen to the Lord live our lives for his glory, love his son, exalt him, share the gospel. Let's baptize people. Let's make disciples. Let's advance his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. I'll pick this up next week and we'll put a bow on it. So thank you for your patience and your kindness. You have a great week. We love you in Jesus name.